Welcome to Help From Future Self. Hello, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help From Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. I am also called Alex, and I am joined this week by my good pal, S.C. Steele. What's going on, Sydney? Not too much. No Boulevard Blake this week. He's very busy with something else. He sends his regards, but it's just going to be the two of us flying solo, which is fun because we've never done a podcast that was just the two of us before. Uh, I am very much looking forward to it and exploring what our dynamic is. Totally. It's going to be a good time because we're going to be playing a very special and very new game. And it's one that I could see us doing again at some point in the future. And I just cannot wait for us to get into it. It's a little something we like to call... This is advocate. <laughs> so here's the thing. You're probably familiar, dear listener, with the premise of taking the devil's advocate position, which is to say that you take a contrary position in an argument for the sake of the argument. Now, that's kind of a jerk thing to do in a lot of scenarios <laughs> in real life. Um, I don't have a lot of time for it in social situations for the most part, but... In the context of the game, one of the things that we thought would be interesting would be to take some commonly held positions or pieces of advice in Keyforge and then come up with devil's advocate responses to them. And the goal for this is not to disprove those particular pieces of advice or those pieces of commonly held wisdom. The idea is to challenge them so that we know when we are applying them whether or not we are applying it because it makes sense or whether we are applying it because it's something that we've internalized and aren't even thinking about. I don't know about you, Sydney, but oftentimes one of the challenges that I have is I don't think through plays. I play instinctually, and that comes back to bite me because I'm only doing the thing that makes sense because my brain made a connection very quickly between, oh, well, if my opponent did this, then obviously the response is to do this, and I didn't take the couple of seconds to actually think through whether or not this was a good time to apply that. You ever have that scenario? All the time. I have so many defaults in my head, especially when my opponent plays certain things that I know are coming. I've been planning for it in my head. So I play what I expect to play, not realizing that in that particular situation, it's probably not the right move. Great. Why don't we get into it? Kick us off with one. All right. So first one on my list, I have um, ABC or always be checking. And they, that's basically always get to six if you can. That way you're putting your opponent in the position that they have to get you off check. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I think that this is a fantastic piece of wisdom, but not always true, is that if your opponent is going to get to six for their last key on their next turn, and you getting to six won't prevent them or won't put you in a position to get them off key, you you have to consider what your next few turns will be. That's excellent, actually. I think that that's a really good one, especially because that's a useful piece of advice when you're first learning the game, but it's one that becomes less and less universally true the deeper you get into understanding your deck in particular. Absolutely. I think when you're first learning a deck and really discovering how it plays, ABC is really good and easy to apply because it just, it gets you to play cards. It gets you to try and advance your game state. But the more you actually start to learn a deck and feel like ways in which you might want to hold back for later things, as you know, certain cards and combinations of cards are coming. It oftentimes is one that should fall by the wayside. 
And there are sometimes even when you know you can get to six, but they already on the board have a way to get you off. So like if they have a pit demon and you know that on their turn, they can steal one and get you off check, maybe playing a whole different house or playing a different set of combination of of cards will get you in a better position. It might be worth not getting to six that turn. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Great advice. And uh, I mean, of course, ABC is great advice, but a great challenge to that advice. I like that a lot, Sydney. Uh, my first one is um, a metaphor that is, I think, crucial for beginners to hear because it really does set the tone of the game, but is one that has started to really fall apart for me as the game has progressed. And that is Keyforge is a not a fight, it's a race. So when I first got started playing Keyforge, someone said that to me online and it really helped me understand what the game was about. The object is to get to three keys before your opponent. And it is not necessarily about taking care of their board or, you know, whatever else. It's about that you know, getting to the finish line before your opponent. That's the only thing that matters. It's also a great way to differentiate it from other card games that are a fight. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Like the, the most popular one in the field. And actually, in fact, I could the two games that are well ahead of Keyforge in terms of popularity are ones that I would apply that to, as well as, as far as I can tell, Yu-Gi-Oh! is also that way. Yeah, like, totally. They're all fight games. <laughs> um uh, I can't speak for things like Legend of the Five Rings, which I understand is a very complex game with many other things going on. But that said, it's a very useful metaphor. Here's the problem with it. In an actual race, the finish line is defined, much like it is in Keyforge, but the route to get there does not generally change very much over the course of the race. And what we have seen with Keyforge is, as the game has evolved, and as we have gotten more and more towards the idea of key cost control over, say, scaling amber control being a way of challenging people's ability to get to the end of the race, or get to the their third key, we are starting to see that metaphor fall apart. And suddenly it does make sense that sometimes Keyforge does have to be a fight, where we're seeing so many more things that exist on the board whose sole existence is to prevent you from getting to the end of the race. So I, I'm starting to think of things as more of a, a combative race rather than just a pure race versus a fighting game. Uh, you know, I, I think that the early way of thinking about it really did lead to a lot of gameplay that was, I'm ignoring my opponent so that I can try and get to as much amber as humanly possible. Whereas now you cannot afford to totally ignore people's board state, what artifacts they have on the table and everything else. There does have to be a combative element in many games of Keyforge in order for you to actually win the race that does make up the game. So, to be fair, in Coda, that might have been true where... Hmm a race will have won you the game. But when Worlds Collides came out and those dinosaurs hit the board or the um, Star Alliance hit the board, there was a a much bigger reason to try and remove the opponent's board from, from wrecking you. Totally. One of the things that I will praise the developers of Keyforge and the designers of Keyforge from now until whenever the game stops being made and probably well after that, uh, may it be many, many decades from now, um, is that I think that they saw the way the game was playing in Coda and they said, we want for the game to be more interactive between the players and less people playing on their own. And I think that the design of subsequent sets has really reflected that philosophy and it has made the game better. 
for sure. And that's your next one. Oh, I was just going to quickly say a strategic reason that it isn't a race is there are a lot of decks out there whose strategy is to steal their amber from you. So if they're Mm -hmm. sitting on a too much to protect and a handful of other cards, they're just sitting back waiting for you to go all the way up with your amber and then they take it from you. So your being ahead in the race actually pulls them forward. That's a great point. I love that. But yeah, so my next one, um, I love this one, um, is kill the witch or in some cases um, kill the uh, the mother or the daughter, the characters, uh, the, the cards that let you draw a card when they're on the board. Mm-hmm. So there are some very, very, very impressive cards that when they hit the board, you know that if you let it get back to your opponent's turn, they'll be able to do a lot of damage. Or if they stay on the board for a long period of time, just their presence will in, improve the uh, your opponent's gameplay a ton. So there, there are definitely some very specific reasons where this may be the wrong move to make, mm-hmm. especially if is in... In the case of some of the more recent witches, if their specific power isn't threatening that turn or is weak in their overall deck, it may be more important to play a bigger turn on your turn. So there may be other threats out there, bigger threats out there, or there there could be um, some combo that you have waiting to to just pop. So killing the the big scary creature on the other side may not necessarily be the right move in that particular turn. I love this piece of advice and I have a great uh, example of the way in which sometimes not suffering the witch to live is not necessary. <laughs> I have a deck um, and it's a deck that I've been very successful with. I won a store championship with it. I went very Ooh. deep in a prime tournament with it. Um, and one of the things that it has in it is Witch of the Eye. Witch of the Eye, a crazy threat in most decks because the ability to recur things within House Untamed is huge. Like you could play a card, then use the Witch of the Eye to bring that card right back to your hand and play it again. It can be absolutely devastating. So you're doubling up on full moons, you're hitting double mimicries, you're doing all kinds of stuff like that. In my deck, the Witch of the Eye doesn't actually have a lot of great stuff to pull But because so many people have internalized the you can't let the Witch of the Eye live, (laughs) they always make a point of spending time taking her off the table, which is great for me because she's not critical to my game plan ever. It's a deck that relies way more on shenanigans within Dis and Shadows to get to the victory. But it's one where if my opponent had spent a little more time oftentimes looking at the deck list and realizing, wait a minute, what's the best thing that he's going to be able to recur with this Witch of the Eye, much less looking at my discard pile to see that, they would oftentimes realize, no, it's okay. Like, there's not that much that's going to come out of this. Yeah, sounds Um, like it's just great bait. Yes, it is perfect bait. But, you know, it, it works specifically because the common wisdom is you don't let the Witch of the Eye live. And challenging that, I think, oftentimes is what helps people beat me when I'm playing that deck. I also come across a situation where sometimes it just costs too much. Like if if something like their mother is five power or if like a daughter is behind a taunt, it's also elusive. So there are lots of reasons where if I have to spend over <clears throat> a certain amount of cards getting rid of their one card, it may be worth letting it live on the board for a turn or two. Absolutely, absolutely. Next one, um, this is a piece of advice that I oftentimes see uh, put out there, and I think it's, uh, generally speaking, a fairly good piece of advice, but I also think that there are problems with it. Oftentimes I see it said that the easiest set to start with is Coda, 
And while that is true, I think that Coda is an easier game to grasp than any of the subsequent sets, uh, if only slightly over AOA. I also think that Coda gives you a very false sense of what the game is now. If you are only playing Coda, then obviously Coda is the best set to start with. But the way that Coda played is so fundamentally different from how we play now in the mass mutation slash getting into Dark Tidings era that starting people off on Coda, while it may give them a grasp of the general mechanics of the game, may not actually prepare them for games against other sets. And maybe the easiest place to start people off is with the current set so they can understand something about the current meta and then work their way backwards through the other sets to discover things. Um, I think from the folks that I've talked to who have started playing the game more recently, oftentimes it's because they picked up a starter set and sometimes the starter set was whatever was available at their local game store. And that really did give them a greater idea of what the flavor of the game was rather than starting on Coda, getting a false impression of this is how the game plays, this is the style of game that it is, that then gets completely dismantled the moment that they encounter, uh, you know, like a hot deck from one of the subsequent sets. You're completely right. I think one of the things that people will start running into is Coda will actually start lacking some important rules as well as cards. So Dark Tidings is coming out with a tide card and anything before Dark Tidings isn't going to have a tide card, but more importantly, anything before Dark Tidings isn't going to have a 37th card. So in that case, Coda won't actually represent whatever is currently on a 37th card for any possible future set. Mm -hmm. You absolutely got it. All right. So my next one, um, a very, very common piece of advice for going first. So this means that you only can play one card. If you go first, play the house with the least number of cards in your opening hand to increase the impact of your first full turn. So your second turn in the game will have no limitation on how many cards you play. So if I pull a three, two, uh, one, uh, if I mulligan into a three, two, one, and I, I want to make the most of my turn, the second turn, I might play the house with the one card because I can only play one on my first turn. And that's a, it's a fantastic piece of advice if you have no other reason to play any other card in your hand or mm. if you're not hard mulliganing for anything. So some, some decks have very specific cards that are beneficial for them to play in their opening hand. So I have, I have a deck with uh, two Eurekas in it. And if I, if I get one of those in my opening hand, there's, there's, no other house that I'm calling except for for that house. So I can play that one card, no matter how many Logos cards I have in my hand. Or if you're able to play a creature of the house that you want to play on your first full turn so that it's a available on the board to use its reap or other power, then it, it might be pertinent for you to play a creature from the house you have the most cards of so that you can make sure that you're prepared for your first full turn. Absolutely. I love it. Um, 
it plays very nicely into a point that I was going to make about going second, um, which is oftentimes, and this is a good piece of advice, and it's one that I generally think for beginners is one that you should stick to, which is um, if you've got a 2-2-2 hand and you're playing second, throw it back and aim to get at least three cards that you can play during your opening turn. There's a good reason for that piece of advice, right? Um if you throw back your 2-2-2 hand and then somehow come up with three, even four, maybe even five cards that you play <laughs> your second turn, you're getting the true advantage of going second in Keyforge. The first person has more advantage in that they're going first but can only play one card, but also they get a draw advantage because their mulligan doesn't hurt them, etc., um, and really, the only way to even those odds, technically speaking, is for you to get to play as many cards as you possibly can on your first turn when you're going second. Here's the thing that I'm finding more and more and more with decks that I'm really familiar with. Oftentimes, it's less about that first turn being the I have to get a running start. And it's more about the I understand what my deck is about. Maybe there's something in this 2-2-2 hand that I can use to really establish myself so that my next turn is the real one where I come out of the gate. I'm talking about things like putting down creatures that are going to protect your other creatures with taunts, things like Shadow Self and so on and so forth. I'm talking about putting down artifacts that, you know, uh, are crucial to gameplay or that just provide you with a long-term advantage, things like Auto Encoder. Oftentimes, I'm starting to find that when I look at these 2-2-2 hands and really start thinking about what the deck wants to do, I'm being presented with options where even if I'm only playing two cards in my first turn, well, my opponent only played one card on their first turn. We're still on pretty even ground if that's all I do in my first one. And maybe getting that super head start but not making super optimal plays isn't necessarily the advantage that we've been uh, teaching ourselves to think that it is. Absolutely. Another thing that that does is it tests your skill at reading a card list. Because if you have only two cards in your hand, but something that your opponent is gonna have a hard time dealing with. So let's say they have um, low creature control. If you have two creatures in a house in your hand, you can be relatively safe putting them out. It's probably a good idea to get that head start. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So uh, it's just a, a good one. And it's really uh, something that I've been doing a lot lately is looking at my two, two, two hands and honestly thinking about, do I want to throw this back even if I have the option to do so? And more and more, I feel like when I'm playing a deck that I know well, it's less the case. Absolutely. All right, so I have another one for you. Um, it's it's very common knowledge that if they have six amber, if the key cost is six, then your opponent is going to forge. So it makes sense for you to try and get them below six or below key cost for their mm -hmm. next turn. But there are definitely a handful of reasons that you may want to let them forge, even if those reasons are very card specific. So if we can hop over to AOA, there are a handful of cards that benefit from having less than a forge amount of keys, amber, or that benefit from not forging at all. So something like Martian Generosity lets them mm -hmm. use up their amber to draw cards. So if you get them back down to five and they can play a card like Martian Generosity, then you have just given them more cards because if they forge, they wouldn't have the amber in their pool. Or in the case of the Heart of the Forest, you want them to forge so that you are able to get to your end goal. Because if they have decided to stay at an early amount of keys, zero or one, you aren't able to win the game until they forge. 
I really like this one because one of the things that I think is truly interesting about Keyforge is something that I liken to the game Dominion. I, I'm sure you're familiar with Dominion. Oh, Sydney, yes. Um, which is that there is a stage of transition within the game of Keyforge and within the game of Dominion when you are no longer trying to stymie your opponent or trying to establish yourself. You're just running for the finish line. And oftentimes what I see is people either make the decision way too late or way too early. And oftentimes when it's way too late um, to make that transition, it's because people were worried about their opponents forging a key when what they should have been focused on was putting themselves in a position to make their opponent worried about them winning. Good point. Um, I see it very frequently uh, in myself as a player uh, and it's something that I've necessarily had to really try to address as a player because we've all known those scenarios where uh, you you use up what you have to try and keep your opponent off and they end up right back where they were on their very next turn and you're not in a position to win the game because instead of trying to get to that position where you can get that final key you've been messing around trying to hold them back so knowing where that point of transition is, is fantastic. And I think that the point that you raise is excellent. There's a point where allowing people to forge is not only necessary, like it's, it's crucial. Absolutely. And I didn't even think about that. Let's say you have one card and one house that will get them off key and you do so. If that's a swing of only one Amber, then basically you're just letting them have a second turn in a row where they get to six and then you have no answer and they're probably gaining more than they lost from losing that turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic point. Um, I got my final one here, and this one's, I'm going to say, probably my co most controversial this is advocate hot take. Um, in order for a deck to be competitive, it is often said that you have to pack a board clear. Um, this used to also be have to pack uh, artifact control. Um, I don't believe either of those things are true. Um, the, obviously, board clear is a great thing to have in your deck, and obviously, artifact control is a great thing to have in your deck. More and more, especially in the current sets, I am seeing decks that I do not need to have those things uh, in order to play competitive games. Um, there's a bunch of different reasons for that. One, I think that truly game warping artifacts, although they are much more common than they used to be, are still oftentimes not be-all end-alls with a few obvious exceptions. Heart of the Forest, Quixel Stone. Um, there are some decks that will get absolutely shut down by those things. Then again, there are a lot of decks that can play under those circumstances and play well. Um, the thing that I find with uh, board clear is the advice of always packing a board clear is if you get behind on board, if you have no way of dealing with all of uh, your opponent capturing all your amber onto their dinos or whatever other house, you have to have some way to address that. Um, what we have seen, especially in the most recent set, is we are getting more and more and more spot creature control, and that spot creature control is high enough value in your deck that oftentimes uh, I see cases where it's like, I don't need a board control because I've got things like cyber clones, and I've got damage pips, and I've got other things that allow me to deal with threats as they come up. And so unless my opponent has a truly steamrolling board state, I'm able to deal with what they have uh, going on. And oftentimes I think that uh, this kind of advice is the kind of thing that people use to like justify not playing a deck. I can't play this one because it doesn't have a, a board clear and I can't play this one because it doesn't have artifact control. It's not competitive if it doesn't have those things. 
oftentimes decks truly are competitive with those things. I'm not saying that board control is bad, and I'm not saying that artifact control is bad. What I'm saying is that as the game has evolved, we are seeing more and more cases where even though it is more than a, a more of a board-based game than it has ever been, um, board control doesn't come necessarily uh, at the cost of wiping everything away and starting all over again. Oftentimes it's smart fighting and spot control where possible. Absolutely. I also think that there's a, a level of disruption that will sometimes make up for that as well, because if they can remove the artifact before they're played or even prevent them from playing them at all, then they they don't have the strength of having that card, even if you do, really don't have pure artifact or board control, because if they're if they're powerful creature or artifact is discarded or purged from their hand before they even play it, then they're they're not getting it to the board anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. You want to hit us with one more? All right. So one of my favorites, Control the Weak has a lot of stigma around it because it picks the house that the opponent should play. So it's really, really hard to decide what to pick. But the, the common knowledge is that you have to pick the house that they've already played the most of because that way they have the least amount of options to play on their next turn. But there are a lot of things that go into deciding what house to pick when you play Control the Weak or um, any card that makes them pick the house based on what you do on your turn. So they you have the option of the house they have the least of on the board or if the cards in their discard pile plus what they have on the board means that they have the least amount of that available in their deck. That could be a factor. But also, if you have six amber, this could be as simple as getting them to pick a house that won't prevent you from forging. So you could be giving them a great turn, but if it gets you to forge a key, it might be worth it. I'm about to admit to a very obnoxious habit, Sydney, and I hope you won't judge me too much for this. I, generally speaking, in an IRL game, won't play Control the Week without looking at my opponent's discard. <laughs> I love it. I usually uh, play something like, I have a lot of Control the Week decks with mind barbs, and I oof. may go as simple as I play the mind barb first, see what house they discarded, and make them play that house. Blake's not here to complain or kvetch uh, with me about this, but anytime Control of the Week comes up in conversation, I have to say it. How did that guard get a pip of amber? It's bonkers <laughs> to me that card got a pip of amber. It seems unreasonable to me that card got a pip of amber. And yet here we sit. It's because they have to give unrealistic expectations to anyone playing Coda. <laughs> really build them up so that we can tear them down. Exactly. Terrific. I love doing this with Sydney. I think that there's probably still tons more advice that we could address in this way. I want to reiterate once again, the point of this is not to say that anything that has been uh, discussed today is bad advice. It's to try and open up other perspectives around it so that we can really analyze our own gameplay and make sure that the decisions we're making are based on what's going on in the game and not based on common wisdom that we've internalized as part of our regular gameplay. For sure. Can't end an episode of Help From Future Self without the titular segment. This one is called... Help From Future, from Self. Future Self. This one's very, very basic, but it burnt me twice over the course of the last week. Oh, no. And so I'm going to uh, I'm gonna bring it up here in the hopes that saying it out loud will help me to remember it. If you are playing a deck with a lot of capture pips, um, be very wary of your gameplay order or your turn play. Um, because a bunch of times recently I have captured Amber when I had uh, rad pennies to play. 
And suddenly my opponent oh. had no amber to steal. And so I had actually boned myself out of being able to steal amber by capturing it onto my own creatures, which then my opponent was able to get back without that much difficulty. And it's because I wasn't paying attention to what the pips are were on my cards. So I'm not playing a card that captures amber. I'm playing a shadows creature. And oh, right. It had a capture uh, pip on it. And now my rad penny is useless. Oh, I oh, totally terrific. feel you. I've recently, I've recently played um, a capture uh, capture pip card and decided to spread it amongst all of my dudes, forgetting that Antony gives a card, gives an amber back to the opponent at the end of my turn. So remember not to put the the amber onto creatures that give amber back to your opponents. Absolutely fantastic. All right. Uh, you can, of course, find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and on The Crucible as Scuzzy Gruen. I'm going to take a quick moment here to do a plug for my never really mentioned on this podcast, other podcast. We have a technical and industrial uh, and related genres of music podcast. You can find us on all of your major podcasting platforms. We have just surpassed 350 episodes. And I was thinking the other day, gosh, I should probably mention that I do that on Help From Future Self. <laughs> and mention Help From Future Self on that podcast so that I can cross my audience up. Additionally, I also did a guest appearance on a friend of mine's podcast uh, this week. Uh, it's called History Lessons for Misanthropes, in which I discuss uh, a historical event that I'm very fascinated by, which is the uh, very close call nuclear incident in December of 1983 that was prevented by a gentleman by the name of Stanislav Petrov. So if you're interested in oddball history with a slightly darker bent uh check out history lessons for misanthropes and i am on the most recent episode which i believe is 67 sydney where can folks find you online i am sc steel on both discord and tco terrific you got any tournaments coming up i have my uh i actually have my kfpl game this week after we record Okay, fantastic. Then I'm not going to keep you any longer because you're going <laughs> to go prep yourself up for that. This was a terrific conversation. Very much looking forward to following up at some point. Very much looking forward to having our good friend Blake with us back next week. We have episode 100 of this podcast coming up very, very soon. That's going to be a fun one. We hope to see you then. Until then, stay tuned.